Hello, my name is Justin McClure, and I'm here today with... Will Sloan. And you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. And today, we're going to get a little bit romantic with Nora Ephron. The name that always comes up when people talk about great romantic comedies. But also a career that spanned long before that, having made her name in journalism, novels, screenplays. She worked for Esquire, and... Her brand of essay was very personal, kind of revealing, and talking about stuff that, especially women, didn't talk about in big publications. And with a biting wit that made her something of an heir to Dorothy Parker, uh, which is an interesting contrast to the films that rocketed her to uh, a different kind of superstardom, which are uh, much more sentimental and... Um, with fluffy. <laughs> yeah, fluffy. That's the word I'm looking for. Now, I was interested in looking into Nora Ephron as a topic for this podcast because, well, first of all, when we talk about female filmmakers on the podcast, we have typically talked about uh, high art filmmakers and also exploitation filmmakers. But what we haven't talked about is arguably the most successful and influential female filmmaker of her era. Which Which, is Nora Ephron. I mean, mean, like, looking at her filmography, you wouldn't know that, though, because... Sleepless in Seattle, When Harry Met Sally, which she wrote. And You Got Mail. And You Got Mail. But those don't seem like the big heavy hitters when you talk about romantic comedies, but then when you think about it, you're like, oh, I guess they are. When Harry Met Sally, like, pretty much single-handedly launched the whole next era of romantic comedy. And when people think of romantic comedies they usually think of Sleepless in Seattle Mm -hmm. because that's the go-to one. And because we're two manly men, we had never seen either of um, her main films. Yeah, and there are certain ingrained biases here, right, about, about, like, these movies look fluffy and so they look unserious, perhaps, Mm -hmm. to our eyes. But it's time to sit down. It's time to sit down and watch them because they're not on Sirius, right? Uh, the, the impact that these movies have had on culture is undeniable. And they mean something to the fans. Like, I mentioned uh, Sleepless in Seattle to my partner Emily, and she's like, ah, that film's so romantic. People love Sleepless in Seattle and You've Got Mail. For many people, these movies are comfort food. They can be watched endlessly. You've Got Mail seemed to play endlessly on TBS. <laughs> and yet I somehow never saw it. <laughs> it's probably because we turned our TV off waiting for the rush hour um, hour to come on. <laughs> yeah, see, there are certain movies that we've seen a million times. And Sleepless in Seattle is one that I somehow avoided, even though that I had seen The Money Pit. And by the way, I think that before this week... Tom Hanks, he's a superstar. We all know him. But I do think that a vital piece of the Tom Hanks puzzle was really for me before this. It's like, it's like I, I get Tom Hanks more having seen him as a romantic lead in these films. So let's talk about Sleeves in Seattle, because I think that is the urtext when you're talking about Nora Ephron. Mm-hmm. And I was very surprised to learn it is not her script. She rewrote somebody else's script. And in the process, she came on as a director. I mean, it's got it, it's like any other Nora Ephron movie, though the in the way that its dialogue is very like sharp and um, sort of self consciously witty in that sort of like Woody Allen style. I, the whole film, which is about um, Tom Hanks, plays a recently um, widowed man with a young son who's having a little bit of difficulty getting through life, and so his son calls a radio uh, psychiatrist. A Frasier, if you will. Uh-huh. And he a t- Dr. Ruth. <laughs> he tells the, uh, listen, there's only one radio psychiatrist <laughs> in my book. 
<laughs> it's Fraser Crane. And he uh, tells the, the country that his dad is having trouble and needs a new wife. And the dad ends up getting on the phone. Listening to this broadcast is Meg Ryan, mm-hmm. uh, all the way over in Baltimore. Who is currently engaged to a nerd played by Bill Pullman. Fuck Bill Pullman. <laughs> He's, he's got allergies. Uh, he always knows what to say and what to give her. No surprises. He fucking sucks. <laughs> but you know who is cool is this guy yep. on the other side of the country who has been on the radio. Yeah, Tom Hanks. Um, so, uh, you know, in the way that we're talking about this, obviously there was something about the premise of this movie that didn't quite connect with us. However, it's a movie about idealized Because we're the love. nerd. Yeah, That's why. <laughs> yeah, I'm Bill Pullman. Yeah, I'm, I'm, we're two Bill Pullmans right here. I'm Greg Kinnear. <laughs> yes. And you've got mail. Oh, man. Greg Kinnear. The ultimate uh, Baxter, as was... Um, <laughs> There's a movie called The Baxter, yeah. all about the guy who gets left at the altar for the handsome stud. But, you know, I was recently reading an article in the New York Times by Wesley Morris, who wrote sort of a, a obituary type article for the romantic comedy, uh, observing that it had basically died. The article is called, Rom-coms were corny and retrograde. Why do I miss them so much? And he said, Romantic comedy is the only genre committed to letting relatively ordinary people, no capes, no spaceships, no infinite sequels, figure out how to deal meaningfully with another human being. But they're also rich. Yes. These are the lowest stakes movies we have that are, and by the way, he addresses that. (laughs) Okay. These are the lowest stakes movies that we have that are also about our highest standards of ourselves. Movies predicated on the improvement of communication, the the deciphering of strangers, and the performance of more degrees of honesty than I never knew existed. Gentle, cruel, blunt, clarifying, TMI, strategic, tardy, medical, sexual, sartorial. They take our primal hunger to connect with one another and give it a story. And, you know, I think there is something to that because Sleepless in Seattle and You've Got Mail are about the difficulty of making and sustaining a romantic connection. I think that the thing that kept me from seeing all of these big romantic comedies is not my dislike for romantic comedies, because I actually like the idea a lot. And mm. if someone says, oh, it's a really great romantic comedy, I'll be like, ooh, let me check it out. Mm. It's that a lot of these films are predicated on both of the people getting together. Like, especially Nora Ephron's films. Mm-hmm. It's usually both the a male and female character spend the film apart, and at the end they finally come together. Mm-hmm. And to me, that was always like, okay, what happens afterwards, though? Because uh, it'll be like a miserable existence. Maybe he becomes Bill Pullman. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Maybe he becomes Greg Kinnear. You don't know. But the movies are offering as well the promise. You can write whatever you want into this ending. And I think that's why it means so much to people. Yeah. And in both of these movies, we start with Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan with their respective partners, whether it's Parker Posey and Mm -hmm. You've Got Mail or Greg Kinnear or Bill Pullman. And so we already see these relationships. We see the happily ever after uh, with somebody else. And it and it sucks. Yeah, it's actually great. In my opinion, but, but 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 to them it sucks. Why did you leave me? They seem like perfectly happy partners to me. Um, but there could be something better out there, there Will. Could, yeah, there could be something better out there, and you know that's an interesting emotion to deal with, right? That's an interesting. It's it, not destiny. I mean, I'm I'm not somebody who believes in the idea that people are destined to be with each other. I Neither think, am I. I think relationships are built on, like, shared experiences and, and that sort of thing. And also understanding and compromise and evolving. Yeah. And, I mean, Sleepless in Seattle, what it gets really great is 
Tom Hanks's struggle with being a single dad and dealing with the kid, mm-hmm. and also Meg Ryan's mm-hmm. slow realization that maybe Bill Pullman is not the man that she should marry. Well, okay, so relationships are built on, you know, uh, struggle and compromise and shared experiences. And then it often takes a long time in relationships to find out that you're incompatible with someone. Mm -hmm. And I think the movies deal with that. Whether Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks will actually stay together and be compatible, um, it's all about the idea that maybe they could. That there's another chance. Like, maybe they'll be able to start something that feels fresh and new. I mean, see this in Seattle when I was watching it. It seems so obvious, maybe it's too obvious, that the film is building to them not getting together, but them get it, using this impetus to move to the next stage of their lives. Yeah. Well, I mean, Sleepless in Seattle yeah, seems to heavily imply that they are fated to be together. Do not like that. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. And I was actually kind of kind of amazed watching it. And I'm sorry that I'm like 30 years late to the party on Sleepless in Seattle. But the fact that Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks are so known as like, you know, the king and queen of romantic comedies, and they don't actually spend most of these movies together. No, they don't. I mean, that, that's fascinating to me. Like, it, it's interesting that this couple resonates with people so much, even though... You never see them as a couple. Yeah. <laughs> um, but somehow... Through, but that's why it resonates so much. Through the magic of Nora Ephron's filmmaking, yes. if that's the word I'm looking for, magic, and through the charisma of Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan, and they do have a lot of charisma... Um, you spend so much time with them apart that you build up in your head this idea, oh, wouldn't they be so great together? It's fascinating that because they're so charming on their own, Mm -hmm. every viewer builds the perfect relationship in their mind. Yeah. And that's why it's so perfect is because it's not cemented there on screen. And Sleepless in Seattle does the sly move of... Saying stuff like, oh, you know, romantic comedies, they're so sappy, it's not really real. And then turning around and going, but what if they were real? Like, yeah. this is what you want, isn't it? Yeah. It's funny that even this, like, this this kind of, like, second golden age of romantic comedies after, like, the, the Tracy and Hepburn era, like, they're already at this stage talking about how corny romantic comedies are. I mean, you have to, because yeah. if you're playing with all those conceits... Like, the characters even say, like, oh, you know, I'm not Cary Grant. I wouldn't do these kind of things. Yeah. They're all stuck in these cliches and these societal structures that they have to follow. Mm -hmm. Like, even Tom Hanks is like, well, I I couldn't do that. Like, I wouldn't be a man if I did that kind of thing. Yeah. Like, they're still following these rules. And you're like, no, just get together and talk about stuff. These movies also give you, like, ample opportunity just to think about Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks as as screen presences. (laughs) Yeah. Meg Ryan is interesting because, like, like she's got this gigantic grin. Like, like she looks a little strange. <laughs> um, sure. She's pretty, but, yeah. but, but... And Tom Hanks also looks a little strange. I like my <laughs> women not to smile, Will Sloan. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying that both these people look a little strange. They, yeah. look, they look... Well, they're not, like, even... Like Clark Gable-ish. Like, they're not the way that yeah. you imagine the ultimate romantic partner to be. Like, Tom Hanks is a little bit schlubby. Yeah. Like, Meg Ryan is not, like, statuesque and perfect. They yeah. are the, um, you know, romantic partner is next door. Yeah. And it's like, oh, this is something that I feel like I could date somebody like mm-hmm. this. Like, if they got to know me and we were on the right page, like, we could yeah. make things work. It's not impossible. Wow, imagine being married to Tom Hanks. <laughs> he um, loved his typewriters. America's dad. Yep. And I think that what I liked about Sleepless in Seattle kind of like rubbed me the wrong way and you've got mail. <laughs> because 
it's first of all, it's a remake of the Ernst Lubitsch film. Yeah, the shop around the corner, which is about um, two characters that are communicating by mail. But in real life, they don't like each other, mm-hmm. but they don't know that they're actually pen pals. Mm-hmm. Uh, You've Got Mail does the weird thing that the Lubitsch version does as well, which is the man understands what's going on first and kind of plays the woman like a puppet on strings for most of the film. Oh, man, I, I don't like that. I don't like that at all. <laughs> I, but hey, what are you going to do? Yeah, I was like, why not switch it around? Lot, lots the... of people seem to love it. <laughs> I mean, uh, Sleepless in Seattle is all about Meg Ryan stalking Tom Hanks yes. for the entire film. So. <laughs> but oh, it's romantic and it's destined to be, so it's okay. So You've Got Mail, you know, has this insane story. Oh, so crazy. Where Tom Hanks is, you know, an executive at this Barnes and Noble type book superstore. Mm -hmm. And they're going to move into the Upper West Side, take up a whole block of the Upper West Side. And uh, in doing this, they are very likely going to put out of business the small independent bookstore run by Meg Ryan. Now, again, I've never seen this movie before. What I assumed would happen is these stores would find a way to coexist. Nope. That's not what happens at all, because the Tom Hanks bookstore crushes Meg Ryan's uh, uh, children bookstore that she loves with all her heart. And it's not even like if the movie was trying to give the message that like she's clinging on to nostalgia and she can't move on. That would be one thing. But it shows us again and again how much of an impact it actually has on people's lives and takes the time to show that the superstore sucks and that the people working there don't care about the books that they're selling yeah meg ryan's store used to be owned by her mother Mm -hmm. and uh, has loyal customers but but ultimately it closes and it is unmourned because frankly progress is gonna happen (laughs) and you better just suck it up and take it and don't even bother imagining a better world nope and guess what you're going to get in a relationship with Tom Hanks. <laughs> oh, yeah. Because, listen, Tom Hanks, you may not like that he put you out of business, but deep down, he's a pretty good guy. He's not going to apologize for putting you out of business because, hey, it's not personal. That's strictly business. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so he, in a very odd scene, comes and brings soup to Meg Ryan like <laughs> after her store closes. Yeah. And she's won over and it's just like Sleepless in Seattle. They get together at the end. Yeah. Well, I mean, he about halfway through the movie, he figures out that she is the anonymous pen pal. And with his best friend, Dave Chappelle. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And he shows up at their date that they've arranged. And this is a scene that was in the Lubitsch one as yeah. well. And he decides not to reveal who he is, but instead to torture her, sit at the table and berate her and (laughs) play psychological warfare and then eventually befriend her as he and he learns about his situation. He's like, oh, you should write this in the letter to the guy. No, you should write this. What what awful, what an awful man. Uh, But I do think these two have chemistry. Yes, I I think they do. And I think that they're both charming on their own when they get to interact with such heavy hitters as Steve Zahn (laughs) as the bookstore employee or in deleted scenes, <laughs> Michael Palin, Michael Palin. So this is a digression, but Michael Palin shot a week in this movie and he was going to play a Thomas Pynchon like author and it was cut. And I think that's tragic. I would have loved to see what that was. Could it maybe the store have been saved in this version? Yeah. Or like, and were the executives like, oh, no, no, listen, we're men. And we think that the men should dominate the women in this film. So, yeah, well, that's the subtext of the film. <laughs> yeah, it is. But, uh, hey, I don't know. Nora Ephron wrote and directed it. So. You got to sacrifice stuff to um, 
get with the man that you love. I mean, the other thing I think that people like about this movie is that it's this, you know, beautiful New York, mm-hmm. like... Uh, well, not the New York that you love, because it's being crushed by super bookstores. You know, Lily White, Upper West Side. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, uh, rich. rich. <laughs> I mean, New York. can you have a romantic comedy where the people are poor? Sure you can. Yeah. I mean, like The Apartment yeah. is a good example. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Judd Apatow's of... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Where... Um, before like they this, became rich. Like this is 40. No, they're rich in that movie. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and while we did talk about the two, I think, main films that Nora Ephron directed and wrote with her sister, she did have a whole other filmography before and after that. Well, her journalism for Esquire magazine in the 60s and 70s, I, I had a chance to read some of her essays this week. And it's I, good stuff. It is good stuff. And I think I'll get back to it. Mm. I didn't know what to expect because I basically knew Nora Ephron as this director of, you know, kind of cloying movies. But no, she's very, you know, sharp and witty. I'm sorry that I'm 50 years late to the party on this. <laughs> Presumably everybody knew that she was a good ass. You could read it in Esquire, the magazine for men. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of a bummer, and I know I'm going to get back to this again, that she made her career on being personal and being kind of dark and just open. And that's not really seen in the films that she directed. I mean, they're open. Like, they talk about relationships in an open way, but there's no darkness or bite to any of them. Yeah, so the closest she got to darkness and edge, I guess, in her film work was writing the screenplay for the movie Heartburn, which was based on her own novel, which was based on her... (laughs) Not a novel. (laughs) Basically a memoir uh, disguised as a novel about her failed marriage to Carl Bernstein, yes, of Woodward and Bernstein fame. The men who took down Nixon. Uh, And he also took down his own marriage. Yes, with uh, many affairs. Yes. Uh, The movie stars Meryl Streep as the character who is Nora Ephron and Jack Nicholson as the character who is Carl Bernstein. Wow, what a cast. And Mike Nichols directed it, the graduate himself. That's right. And uh, wow, what a nothing film. Boy, I was really, you know, I dared to hope to like this movie. I was... Uh, surprised that I had never heard of this movie before, like, looking into Nora Ephron's filmography, and then watching it, I went, huh, yes, this is why I've never heard of it. It is crazy. You would think a movie with Jack Nicholson and Meryl Streep. Directed by Mike Nichols. Yeah. uh, It would um, have a little bit more cachet in the public consciousness, but for a film about an affair, has almost no dramatic weight to it. mm -hmm. It has no structure, and one of its biggest problems is the Meryl Streep character is the best person in the world, And Jack Nicholson is bad, but he is also barely a character. Yeah. I mean, this is a movie that for me sort of coasted along for about 30 minutes just because you got Meryl Streep, you got Jack Nicholson. These are charismatic people. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that it's building up to this big dramatic moment where things fall apart. And it does, but it's kind of played for like goofy laughs and... Yeah. It just kind of goes from there. It's certainly not funny. It's certainly not an interesting story. It's just a story like any other. Uh, in a documentary I watched called Everything is Copy, that was... Everything is Copy. <laughs> yeah, sorry, Everything ahead. is... Uh, yeah. Uh, classic Lego movie reference. <laughs> uh, a documentary directed by Nora Ephron's son. Someone talks about the fact that Mike Nichols actually said, like, hey, could we add a little bit more um, kind of detail so Jack Nicholson is not just a one-note villain in the 
the film. Mm-hmm. And she said, uh, the person telling the story says that steam shot out of Nora Ephron's ears. <laughs> like Nora Ephron is portrayed multiple times in uh, her essays, her fiction, her movies. And one of the big stumbling blocks in it being something really impactful is that the portrayals of her are always super nice, super good person. Right. It's very rare that there's any darkness to her. There's a film that she and her sister wrote. um, Hanging Up, I believe it's called. Yeah, that was directed by Diane Keaton. That was about how Nora Ephron kind of took people's stories and made it their own, then used it later on in an essay. Mm. And there you can see a little bit of that kind of, like, darkness. Yeah, it's her deconstructing Harry. Yeah, but other than that, it's not really present in her work, which is funny because in that same doc, people say that, like, Nora Ephron was really mean and judgmental. (laughs) Like, (laughs) that's what kind of endeared her to people as long as they weren't in the sights while she was talking. Yeah, because in her essays, she would uh, write really harsh essays about, you know, famous friends of hers. Total poison pen stuff. And that's nowhere to be found in any of the movies that she made. And I think it really comes down to the fact that she's a woman. And a man can do this. A man can write poison pen stuff and turn around and kind of write this in movies. But as a woman, if she did that, people would be like, oh, you're difficult. Uh And you're too mean. So, yeah, you can't really work in the film scene anymore. Well, possibly, but it's also possible that that's just not the kind of movie she wanted to make. Perhaps. Like, she was making the sorts of movies that people weren't making much at the time, which were romantic comedies. And, you know, sort of gentler movies, movies from a woman's point of view, uh, movies that were supposed to be like comfort food, you know? Ah, but I wanted the mean Nora Ephron, the thing that made her famous. I'd love that too. But I, it just movies doesn't exist. Movies aren't for me. Yeah. Uh, so her first movie as a director, which we also both watched, I think has a lot of this problem. It's called This Is My Life, and it stars Julie Kavner. Marge Simpson herself! It, it stars Julie Kavner. Oh, and this is why I watched it. Yes. You alerted me to the existence of this film. I was uh, very interested in the fact that it was about a single mother who has two children and then gets a career in stand-up comedy and how she juggles those things. Right. That's, you know, an area that, especially at that time, never got touched upon. Mm -hmm. The idea of, like, a woman having a career in the creative arts and then having to take care of kids as well. And, I mean, that's what the movie's about, but in the most gentle and, like, no one is really a villain kind of way. Yeah. Or it's like... It's fine that no one's a villain. It's that nobody has any kind of sharp edges. I mean, no. I guess I guess the Samantha Mathis character, yeah, the does, teenage daughter, <laughs> does a little bit in kind of a typical like teenage daughter way. But like uh, the um, the Julie Kavner character, there's nothing, and you know that's the Nora Ephron surrogate. Yeah, like that she either experienced that in her own life, mm-hmm. and it's weird the balance of responsibility of being a parent and how do you feel that you're still present with your kids? And at the end of the day, the message is like, the kid has to learn, oh, you know what? My father's a piece of shit. So maybe my mom isn't that bad. Yeah. Very disappointing. Yeah. I, I, like, I don't know. It's it's a great premise for a movie. And I just felt like I was watching air. <laughs> yeah. But you got to hang out with Marge Simpson for 90 minutes. I thought Julie Kavner was great. Very good. Yeah. Kind of sad. She didn't have any other movies that she could be in. Yeah. It's too bad. And as you may have noticed, we haven't really talked about uh, Nora Ephron's later career because, I don't know, there's only so much time in the day and there's nothing that really, like, jumped out at us. Well, it's a pretty wobbly filmography. It's interesting that she had 
three movies that became like big zeitgeist hitting smashes as a director. So in addition to When Harry Met Sally, there was Sleepless in Seattle, You've Got Mail, and Julie and Julia, Mm -hmm. which came out shortly before her death and was a very big hit. But then there were also some movies like Bewitched. Yeah, uh, with Will Ferrell and Nicole Kidman. Mm -hmm. I I did not see it. Did you? That seems to be around the area where you're forced to go see those types of movies for a newspaper that you were writing. No, I I didn't see that one. And there was also uh, Mixed Nuts. Another remake of a French film. Yeah. And then there was Michael, the one where John Travolta plays an angel. Another TBS staple. That was actually a pretty big hit. (laughs) He invented lines. Yeah. (laughs) That was a big joke in the movie. I don't know if anybody's watched that movie since it came out, but it was a big hit at the time. It has a cover that's very similar to The Saint, the Val Kilmer action film. So I'd always get both of them confused. (laughs) And that's pretty much it for her career. Because she died pretty young, uh, in her 60s, I believe, of leukemia. Um, And the thing that really stands out from that last period of her life is that she didn't let anybody know that she had leukemia. Mm. And people, especially the documentary I watched, talk about how she was always open and she would be willing to talk about stuff and the people she knew. But when it came to this end of her life stuff, she just kept it completely under wraps. Like Mm. even some of her closest friends had no idea that it was going Mm. on. So, Nora Ephron, what can you say? Uh, the impact on culture is undeniable. I mean, undeniable. When Sleep- people like, Sleepless in Seattle, you say romantic comedy, yeah. you think Nora Ephron. Yeah. And if it's not my kind of movie, then, you know, who gives a shit about me? Yeah, I mean, if it's people's favorite movie... <laughs> people love it. We're just two dumb guys who yeah. love the Dirty Dozen. <laughs> <laughs> do we have any letters this week? Yes, we do have letters. And as per usual, you can send letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. And the first letter is from Ronnie, and it goes, Hi, Justin and Will. Jesus. Been enjoying your take on films. He didn't say it like he was insulted or anything like that. He was referring to the man. Yes. Jesus. Okay. (laughs) Been enjoying your take on films, and I am glad you dedicated an episode to Jesus. Though I am Jewish, Jesus plays a special part in my life. The Easter parade in New York City is my favorite day of the year, and as a young cinephile, I wanted to understand how cinema reflected society through the treatment of this hallowed story. There is a funny story connected with this. I would visit the Mormon Center in New York while in high school, and was so impressed by the techniques in their films, remember the commercials they used to make? That I was actually considering going to Brigham Young University for film. Wow. They have a film (laughs) class at Brigham Young? University? I mean, you gotta get that propaganda out there. Jeez. I went so often to the center, a block away from my high school, that Mormons actually biked all the way to my house and left a Book of Mormon on the same day I checked out a Jesus VHS tape from the library, King of Kings by Nick Ray. These two factors convinced my father I was about to convert. (laughs) It took a lot to convince him to allow me to watch the film, but even then, he made me turn the sound down really low so he could come in and lecture about how Jesus was not the son of God while the film was in progress. (laughs) I hope this shows what a unique place this episode would have for me. That being said, I was surprised that in the episode, both versions of King of Kings was not covered, especially since another DeMille film was discussed. And while they may not be completely about Jesus, they still devote a large amount of time to him, like Ben-Hur. There are also filmmakers who were religious who at one time or another devoted a film or two to that belief, Leo McCary, John Ford, King Vidor, that may be an interesting lens to see their films through. Guess what I'm trying to say is, another episode like this may be in order, same time next year. Thanks for all you do, Ronnie. Uh, I actually watched Nick Ray's King of Kings, but I had already watched a lot of films that Will hadn't seen that week, so it would have gotten a little long if I just explained my experiences through all of them. The greatest story ever told. (laughs) Just sapped it Um, out of you. It was hard to watch that in one sitting. Yes. (laughs) King of Kings is 
interesting because uh, it spends a lot of time contextualizing the historical period that Jesus is in mm. before it turns into the, you know, normal kind of dull Jesus story sounds, in the second half. Uh, sounds interesting. I, uh, I should see it. I mean, Nick Ray, great filmmaker. Ray, yeah, can't deny and as far as talking about filmmakers and their films through a religious lens, that's actually interesting. Yeah, the I fact like it. that, like, you know, we define John Ford by a certain aesthetic, but he did make, wasn't it? Um, it's the one where John Wayne, it's like a Western and they're the uh, three wise men. Uh, oh, yeah. Um, I, I can't remember. Yeah, but, but they're uh, out there, yeah. and I'd be really interested in seeing them. Battlefield uh, Earth. <laughs> Battlefield Earth. Which yeah, that's another good one. Highly informed by its stars' religious views. It is? Oh, I didn't know that. I'll have to visit it. Yeah. <laughs> Wink. And then, and then I can give you some interesting literature about the religion, <laughs> and, uh, and perhaps I could give you a stress test. I like to say that I read a lot of L. Ron Hubbard books as a child with no idea of what Scientology was. That amazes me because the idea of a non-Scientologist reading an L. Ron Hubbard book battlefield like they were they were used at the bookstore in the science fiction section battlefield earth is like 1500 pages long wow it is massive i did not read all of it but he had another series that was actually about a villain who came down to earth and it there was like 10 books in the series and he was just putting in plans to destroy planet earth and that's what I read and I enjoyed. I don't even remember what he it was He was called. one of the most prolific authors of all time. So yeah, real so hack. <laughs> somebody was reading them. <laughs> um, so thank you very much for the letter. And if anybody else would like to email us, you can do so, as per usual, at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. This week on our Patreon, we talk about, finally, I mean, it's been a long time coming, the Dice Man himself. Well, I mean, obviously we needed to balance the estrogen with a little bit of testosterone, you know what I mean? I didn't even think about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're talking about Andrew Dice Clay, the man who gave us uh, the dirty nursery rhymes, the Iceman Cometh, and the film that we talk about on this week's Patreon episode, The Adventures of Ford Fairlane. To be clear, he didn't give us the Iceman Cometh. That was Eugene O'Neill. He wrote, gave us the Dice Man Cometh. Dice Man Cometh, yes. <laughs> I missed a D there. I mean, Eugene O'Neill, Andrew Dice Clay, I could both of them Comparable sometimes. artists, yeah. I would say, yeah. Uh, so why are we fascinated by this bad man? You'll have to listen to the episode to find out. And that's $5 a month. You can become a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com slash theimportantcinemaclub. And... Patreon subscribers get a new feature this week is that we open one of those newfangled, and by that I mean a couple of years, Discord servers. Yeah, we had some requests for it, I believe. Yes, uh, I have never used a Discord server before. I knew they were chat rooms of some kind. And now if you become a Patreon subscriber, and I think you need a Discord account and you just sync it up with your Patreon account, you can just jump in the chat room and chat with fans of the Important Cinema Club. Me and Will might be dropping by at some time. I've stuck my head in a couple times. Me too, see what's going on. Wrote a few things here in there yeah um a real uh, direct line to me and you yeah. <laughs> so uh patreon subscribers if you are a five dollar member or a ten dollar member who gets the newsletter you can subscribe now and join that chat room i'd also like to point out that if you do want the newsletter and you're listening to this episode this is your last chance to subscribe for this month's last month's issue was all about action cinema and i was really happy to put it out i got a lot of good um compliments from it this month's issue who knows what it'll be about but you're gonna miss out if you don't become a subscriber now at the ten dollar level okay so what are we doing next week will uh we're actually not doing anything next week <gasps> because we are taking our annual trip to rochester for the nitrate picture show but patreon subscribers will be able to hear an exclusive wrap-up 
and they're usually pretty long too. They're like longer than normal Patreon episodes. So yeah. it'll be like getting like a full sized uh, yeah. episode of the Important Cinema Club. We value your money, you know. <laughs> yeah. We, we want to. We don't want to give you a week without. So so uh, make sure to listen to that episode. Uh, I'm sure we'll have tons of movies that we're going to talk about that we had no idea about before and we'll be like ah you gotta see these now because that's happened both years that you've been yeah and it happened to me last year that i went so until the next episode my name is justin blue i'm will sloan thanks for listening hi this is justin just cutting in here briefly to remind you to follow us on facebook at the important cinema club and you can also check us out on twitter at IMPRT Cinema Club because we'll be posting on both those places when we'll actually be having meetings and discussions in the chat rooms so everybody can get organized and meet at a specific time. And I'd also like to note that we will be doing the draw for Patreon's choice so one Patreon subscriber can pick a movie that me and Will will discuss on a Patreon episode and that'll happen um, not next week but the week after that and we'll be picking from the group of people that subscribed for this month. So if you want to get in on that, make sure to become a subscriber right now while you're listening to this. And finally, I'd like to thank all the people who have recently become subscribers to the Patreon, and that includes Jacob, Michael, Zachary Ainsley, Charlie Brooks, Philip Segal, Benjamin John, Nathan Hornblower, D. Ali Fornias, Elias Bogacki, Jake Richardson, Josh LaBelle, and Matthew Thomas. Thank you very much for becoming subscribers. We really couldn't do it without your support. And now, listen to me and Will talk about upcoming summer movies. And yes, I realize we forgot to talk about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but I can assure you that both me and Will are very much looking forward to it. So, Will, it's starting to be the time that when we record this podcast, our glasses get all fogged up and we're covered in sweat because there's no air conditioning in this room and it's brutal when we have to record a podcast. But that also means that summer movie season is around the corner. Man, the blockbusters, all the stars are out to shine. Tom Cruise, Tom Hanks, Julia Roberts, all the biggest stars. Are Rob Lowe, Richard Gere. At your multiplex. Um, I actually went, I don't know what's summer movies are coming out is it just avengers endgame that's being released every week that's it that's yeah. the only movie from now on <laughs> i mean I, we're talking about summer movies so i don't think that there's anything that'll be exciting will at any point in time ah, there might be well, detective pikachu you know when i was a kid i used to get the entertainment weekly summer movie preview <laughs> issue oh it's extra large so exciting really oh man i i used to be so excited about oh man Tim Burton, Planet of the Apes is coming out. <laughs> Rush Hour 2 is coming out. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, it's true that summer movie season doesn't quite ex excite me as much as when I was 12. Mm -hmm. um, but you hate capitalism. I, I just hate movies. I don't like movies anymore. They're bad. But there are lots of movies coming out soon. Uh, and we're going to give you a quick rundown on what some of this summer's hot entertainments are. <laughs> Take out your notebook. All right. So Aladdin, right? The Lion King. Oh, my God. No, these are movies that we do not uh, respect and we think are bad. Holy moly. Uh, especially The Lion King what? and Aladdin. Guy Ritchie, how many chances does he get? He's had three flops in a row. He keeps making movies. Well, you know, he'll do an okay job with this one because they're just taking the cartoon and taking every shot. What about Freaky Genie, though? They're putting people in it. Oh, yeah, Will Smith. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. It's not for me. Have you seen the footage of him? Nobody likes that. Yeah, I I wonder. I mean, I have no idea. I have no ability to predict who's going to like which Disney like live action remake. Yeah. Uh, 
there's a whole audience of people, let's call them normal people out there, <laughs> who just like these movies. And yeah. I don't know. They just, you know, sometimes you just want a piece of pizza. It doesn't matter what it is. You just like pizza. I mean, when Dumbo came out a few weeks ago, I thought, who knows? This could open to $200 million. I don't know. I mean, uh, <laughs> <laughs> did you see the trailer for The Gemini Man? With, no, it's de-aged Will Smith. It's though, not right? de-aged. It's full CG Will Smith de-aged. Oh, oh, really? And you couldn't, like, you can't tell, which is horrifying. Oh, wow. Yeah, like, I was reading an article about that it, they didn't use the Marvel technology. They just did a full CG thing on his face My God. to make it look like a young Will Smith. A fresh prince, if you will. Did you ever see that movie with Shah Rukh Khan? I think it was called Fan, where it's Shah Rukh Khan plays the movie star and he also plays his own stalker. And I it's like a, a younger, creepier, digitally de-aged Shah Rukh Khan. <laughs> Highly recommend it. Uh, other than those Disney films that are coming out, I mean, what's exciting? Uh, I, I'll see John Wick 3, probably. Have you seen John Wick 1 and 2? Yeah, I liked them. Okay, yeah. I'm very excited for John Wick 3. I'm all in for, you know, action directors directing action in a very, um, you know, let's say, pretentious artistic style mm -hmm. because it's good action and it's fun and also... Mark DeCascos as the main villain. My man, mm -hmm. who hasn't been in a theatrical film in... Whew, Decades? Star of I Am Omega. That's right. Beautiful film. <laughs> uh, also star of Drive, which is a really good one, and tons of other stuff. And he's also the host of The Iron Chef. You know, I'm not in the habit of missing Godzilla movies, mm -hmm. so I will go see Godzilla King of the Monsters. I mean, you're saying it as if it's actually like... Uh, you know, I'll see it because oh, it's coming no, out. Oh, yeah. no, want, I want to see it. I'm I mean, sorry. for the first mm -hmm. time in, I don't know, uh, how long, someone is making a Godzilla movie that feels like they want to make one and <laughs> are excited about it. Like, Michael Doherty is an actual fan of these movies. Yeah. It has an insane cast, whether it's like Kyle Chandler, Vera uh, Farminga, Millie Bobby Brown from Stranger Things, Ken Watanabe. It's, I thought you were going to say Godzilla, Mothra, King Ghidorah. Uh, and supposedly like 14 other monsters, including our favorite spider. I don't remember what his name Ka is. Karmakaras. Yeah. Karmakaras. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. He's in the trailer, so he's going to be in the movie. That's a bit of a deep cut one. But also coming out this summer, I don't know. What Like what? What, what do I want to see? Uh, Rocket Man, the uh, uh, film that is the uh, <laughs> Elton John biopic by the real director of Bohemian Rhapsody, Dexter Fletcher. Uh, there is um, Dark, Phoenix. Dark Phoenix, <laughs> which the trailers make it look like it was shot in a car park somewhere. Looks, what ugh. about The Dead Don't Die? Ugh, like well, I, I watched the trailer of that and I'm like this looks like every shitty zombie movie that's came out come out in the last 15 years I mean it's baffling to me because Jim Jarmusch has you know never let me down <laughs> I mean he's he's as uncompromising a filmmaker as we have and the trailer makes it look like it's like been made for the sorts of people who like put up a Bill Murray poster in their dorm <laughs> yeah, room. That's right. But you know, maybe he knows something I don't know. Maybe like, it'll maybe, be good. I, or it's just going to be a lame zombie comedy with a uh, cavalcade of stars that come in to be killed after a few minutes. I mean, it's possible that Jim Jarmusch is just old and doesn't know any better now. How about Men in Black International, a film for no one? Yawn. <laughs> Boring. Toy Story Four. Uh, I don't know. I don't care. <laughs> uh, I'm looking through here. Lion King, Hobbs and Shaw. Very excited yeah, for Fast sure, and Furious sure. Head. Uh, the New Mutants, another Fox mutant film that's been buried for almost a year that they're probably going to quietly dump so they can just get it off the slate. Speaking of Fox, how about Ad Astra, which is the new James Gray film starring Brad Pitt. It's a $60 million movie and it is supposed to open on May 24th. And there have been no posters, no trailers. And that's a movie that is, uh, I think, going to get lost in the uh, it's not even Disney on. It's not even on this list. 
<laughs> so I would be surprised if it actually comes out. It's on the schedule. I wonder if James Gray is going to come out and say something if they just b- blow past that date and nothing happens. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's a James Gray play. He's like, listen, we're just going to release it without letting anyone know what it's about. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, there's a new film from the director of Hereditary. Uh, I don't know, man. And then summer's pretty much over. And we're into the season that's really exciting. The Joker movie on October 4th. <laughs> The Oscar contenders, you mean. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, uh, I, mean, I don't know, not a very exciting summer other than Godzilla. <laughs> I don't know if, like, we got older or the movies got worse. Uh, I don't know. Maybe we're just less excitable at this point in time. Yeah. Because, you know, maybe a long time ago I'd have been excited about a Lion King. No, I wouldn't. No, <laughs> There's no. no way that would have ever happened. <laughs> 